ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. And it's a the most wonderful time of the year, Peter King Podcast, because I love Thanksgiving. Favorite holiday of the year. And, you know, of course, I love turkey. I'm going to be out in Seattle for Thanksgiving with my daughter, my other daughter and her family. Uh, All the families will meet in Seattle. We'll enjoy it. I'll be only a few miles away from a really good football game but uh, on Thanksgiving night, but there's no working on Thanksgiving. There might be TV on in the background, but I, I don't work on Thanksgiving. I eat, and then I continue to eat, and then when that's over, I eat some more. And you'll be surprised. My favorite thing on Thanksgiving, cranberries. They must be fresh cranberries. I will not tolerate canned cranberries. I just won't do it. So Mr. Spoiled here with his great cranberries, as you listen to this, preparing for your own Thanksgiving feast, or if you're around the world and I get email from everywhere, I'm sorry you don't have our Thanksgiving tradition, but just understand on Thursday, we're all going to stuff ourselves with turkey, cranberry sauce, and hopefully a nice piece of pie. So anyway, That's going to be my Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to all of the listeners, viewers, experiencers out there on the Peter King podcast. This week, it is a jam-packed podcast. I'll be joined by Miles Simmons, uh, my NBC Sports pal and peer, and we will discuss all other things non-Kansas City, Philadelphia related. And we will get into that in a few minutes. Later on in the podcast, we'll have two very interesting guests this week. One is uh, Mike North, who's the NFL VP of Broadcast Planning. We're going to talk about Black Friday and the schedule. And what in the world are they going to do with so many Bengals national games if the Bengals fall to earth? We'll also be joined later on by Scott Hallenbeck, the CEO of USA Football. I've just been really curious about this flag football stuff in the Olympics. And I had an interesting conversation with Scott Hallenbeck. And, you know, it's among the most interesting things is we're not necessarily locks for gold in the Olympics in flag football, which I think is a surprise. But they'll come up later in the pod. But first, I really want to spend a few minutes talking about the Monday night game 
obviously Philadelphia over Kansas City. And there were a few parts of this game that I think my opinion on them may surprise you. My first opinion is, even though the Kansas City Chiefs now, in the last three games, offensive points have scored 9, 14, and 17. I'm not that worried about them. And I'll tell you why I'm not that worried about them. And when I say 9, 14, and 17, they got uh, you know a turnover return for a touchdown, obviously, against Miami in Germany. So they won that game 21-14. But the reason I'm not really that worried about Kansas City is, is pretty simple. I don't think you're going to see Travis Kelsey get stripped in the red zone again. I don't think you're going to see an absolutely perfect ball. And let me say this, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, that was not an easy catch. But that is a catch that any receiver on any roster in the NFL has to catch or you're not going to be playing in the NFL. So, in other words, he laid out for it. The ball is right in his hands. You saw it or you've seen the replay. That that ball is right in his hands. Those are two touchdowns right there. The Travis Kelsey strip. And at worst, it's a field goal. That's 10 or 14 points that are not scored because of mistakes that guys who normally would never make those mistakes made them. So when I look at that game, I don't look at Kansas City and think they're in huge trouble. They're in trouble. No question about it. But I think they're more in trouble because... their young receivers are not emerging fast enough. Sky Moore, Rasheed Rice, Kadarius Toney. Kadarius Toney, I don't know that you can think about him anything other than whatever you get out of him as a bonus right now. Um, I just think he's, uh, you know, he's a little bit uh, unpredictable, and I'm not sure that, Andy Reid, Brett Veach of Kansas City are really relying on him. So having said all that, one other thing about Kansas City, and then I'll get to Philadelphia, is that their defense now is shown, especially the last eight quarters against two very good offensive teams, that this is a defense that's going to keep you in games. So whereas I don't necessarily trust other teams altogether well, you know, to to make a deep playoff run, I still trust Kansas City to do so. Let's talk about Philadelphia. That is a huge, huge, huge win. This game in terms of not necessarily a monumental win because the Eagles play in January and February in bigger games than this, but it reminds me a little bit of when Detroit went into Kansas City on opening day And maybe you look at the game and you say, man, I'm not sure Detroit deserved to win that game. Detroit won the game. Detroit played really well on defense that day. And they showed that, you know, finishing eight and two last year is no fluke. I think the big thing about this one is Andy Reid had had his former team's number. He was four and oh against Philadelphia since leaving 
uh, Philadelphia for Kansas City a decade ago. And now you look at it and you just say after the Super Bowl and after the game on Monday night, these teams are almost a coin flip. And when I look at the game overall that the Eagles played, I just thought that they were they were forced into some mistakes by the uh, Kansas City defense, no question about it. But I think there were two or three things about about the Eagles in this game that I absolutely love. Number one, look, I'll say it: people in Philadelphia might not agree. DeAndre Swift is a better back than Miles Sanders. He just is. He has more explosion, I think, than Sanders does. And he comes at uh, a microscopic part of the cost. You know, Sanders signed in Carolina four years, $25 million, And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, DeAndre Swift is about you know, $1.5, $1.7 million this year, whatever his number is. Um, it's a it's a very good contract for the Eagles, and I just think he's a better back. Number two, <clears throat> at the beginning of this year, I said Jalen Hurts is the second best quarterback in football, right behind Patrick Mahomes. I I'll say it right now this week with an exclamation point. He's the number two quarterback in football right now, right behind Mahomes. He's playing with a little bit of a bum leg. You know, his left knee hurts a little bit. We don't know what's wrong, but uh, as uh, was shown last night, I think Lisa Salters, as I'm recording this on on Tuesday, I think Lisa Salters uh, showed basically that he had a little sleeve on his knee. So they're being protective right now of, uh, of their quarterback in Philadelphia, and rightfully so. But I think Jalen Hurts had a commanding presence in this game on Monday night and really felt felt strongly when I was watching them play, just like when I watch Kansas City, Jalen Hurts is going to have a solution for these. His long uh, pass leading to the winning touchdown, you know, to uh, Devontae Smith was just a huge, huge play. The moment was not too big for him, just like the moment was not too big in the Super Bowl. And I understand Jalen Hurts had a bit of a shaky start to this season. I get it. I think right now he's just behind Mahomes. I thought Mahomes was borderline magnificent in this game. And Jalen Hurts was very close to him. And I know neither of them had transcendent numbers. I don't care. They were both really good. The last thing I would say about the Eagles. Here's the thing I like about the Nick Sirianni teams that I've seen so far. Their teams kind of take on the personality of their coach. Nick Sirianni's got a little S to him, if you know what I mean. And he is not in any way ever going to be intimidated by the officials, by the other coach, by anybody. Grew up as a coach. His son grew up uh, as a tough guy, sort of. Very pleasant to be around, but he can be really tough. And I think that his team right now has kind of taken on his personality. And... I think one of the one of the things that impressed me is how a guy like Nick Sirianni brings in a Kevin Bayard. Just, I mean, a great a great uh, decision uh, to trade for him by Howie Roseman, the GM. 
but he brings in Kevin Bayard, and he basically, if you watch Bayard, he he has come in. He's no shrinking violet. He comes in, and he also is a big presence on a defense with a bunch of big names in it already. So I think both of these teams showed that either or both uh, can be in the uh, can be in the Super Bowl conversation and should be in the Super Bowl conversation. Impressed with both of them, even though mistakes were made. The last thing I'll say, do not panic, Kansas City. Do not. You're going to be okay. I guarantee you're going to be okay. You're going to be playing for something in late January. Not sure. I'm not saying you're going to make the Super Bowl. I don't know. But you will be competing for the Super Bowl in late January. In Philadelphia, you certainly will be too. A really interesting game Monday night and enjoyed it a lot. So let's get to my conversation with Mike North, the NFL's vice president of broadcast planning about all things schedule and TV down the stretch of the 2023 NFL season. Back in the podcast, happy to be joined by Mike North, uh, the NFL's vice president of broadcast planning. Uh, and I've gotten to know Mike over the last few years, particularly because I'm a little bit of a schedule nerd and I've written and talked a lot about the schedule and, and all that. So I thought it would be good to have Mike on this week, mainly to discuss the first ever Black Friday game. And you know, Mike, I uh, one of the things that I noted in my column this week is that it's it's so odd, so many things that are happening with Amazon. But when you think about it, I covered the Thursday night game. The game was twice delayed by a drone over the stadium. And I thought, you know, first of all, you never would have even, nobody even heard of a drone 15 years ago. But also, nobody ever thought that a big package of games with a huge game like Cincinnati at Baltimore would be being put on by a uh, a big tech monolith and not one of the networks. And, and it's just... Things have changed so rapidly in this world that, you know, I'm writing sentences that 15 years ago I never would have written before. Like, you know, Amazon is the big tech company that ships packages everywhere and also has Al Michaels in the booth to do the Ravens and the Bengals. It's just life is a little bit weird these days in the media world. It's been an interesting journey, uh, for years, right? This wasn't just the last year or two that Amazon became an option for us. You'll remember we've tried some streaming, uh, some over-the-top broadcasts in the past. We had Yahoo jump in there once. I think yeah. we had Verizon jump in there once. And, you know, people don't remember Amazon's been a Thursday night partner for years. They were part of that TriCast model where it was on broadcast and it was on NFL Network and it was on Amazon. And I think, uh, you know, senior leadership at our shop, the commissioner, Brian Rollapp, Hans Schroeder, were encouraged by, you know, the viewership that was coming from Amazon 
for the Thursday night package as part of the TriCast. And it led to this notion that maybe someday they could be, you know, the package holder exclusively. And there was certainly some hand wringing and a lot of consternation. And it wasn't a decision made uh, haphazardly. But um, I think you're seeing, you know, the results this year. Our fans have become more accustomed. I think we've all understood now. Uh, how to find Amazon, where to find Amazon. Maybe we could find it, but we'd have to help our parents find it. Um, And and now the fans are finding it and you can see the numbers are going up. And look, there's a certain amount of serendipity to land on a game like Baltimore Cincinnati in, you know, mid to late season. That's going to be so impactful. Uh, Obviously the story coming out of it is, is the injury to burrow, but we going into it. um, Yeah. It was about as uh, big as we could have hoped for when we put that game on the schedule in May. So, Mike, explain for those who don't recall all of the, uh, you know, all of the various uh, things that went along with making a game on a Friday on Thanksgiving weekend, which the NFL is, to the best of my knowledge, you've never had a game on Friday of Thanksgiving weekend. And I wonder if you can just run down... What exactly happened to make that possible? Started during the negotiations with Amazon um, as they were venturing into being a viable contender and then, you know, a, a finalist for the Thursday night package. They saw that there was an opportunity to have their package extend from week two all the way through week 17, but they would have had to skip week 12. They would have had to skip Thanksgiving. And so they started asking about, is there a way for us to get into the Thanksgiving weekend? As as you know, uh, football and Thanksgiving are, are synonymous. Our viewership numbers yeah. from our Thanksgiving games uh, are outstanding. Those two games in Dallas and Detroit every year, are two of the top three, top four, top five most viewed games of the season every year, no matter what, throughout the records, Thanksgiving and football go together. And so Amazon was looking for a way to get into that weekend if they could. Uh, Friday became a discussion point. There's uh, certainly other sporting events on that day. It's not truly a national holiday. Some of us have to work, but uh, a lot of us are kind of sitting around and whether we're shopping or uh, just sleeping off the turkey, it became an opportunity there where um, Amazon was interested and we thought there was a window where you know, on an already pretty thin week, we've got to stretch these 16 games across now three games on Thursday, one on Friday. We're looking for the big doubleheader game Sunday afternoon, a good Sunday night, a good Monday night. Flexible scheduling would be challenging, always challenging in week 12 because of how much inventory is already allocated to other windows. So finding a game for Friday, you know, it's got to come from somewhere and it was going to thin out everybody else just a little but. Uh, the scheduling team felt confident to represent uh, the commissioner and to Brian and Hans that we could make it work. Um, it'll be a good first test for us all, but I, I think the awareness is there. That's step one. And then it's going to be, you know, how good is the game, uh, how impactful it is, and uh, we'll learn from this and, and go from there. But you had to pass, the league had to pass a new rule to basically make it possible to add inventory this year, right? To 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 add extra games on short weeks. Yeah, the, the short weeks is the key. You've got it right. Um, the, the league, you know, got the rights to 
pull games from other packages and find other windows like a Black Friday uh, or 9.30 a.m., you know, international games or wherever else we end up finding homes for our games and our fans want to see them. We, we got the right to deploy the games in that manner uh, in the most recent round of media deals. But your your point is right. What we had as Amazon extended to a 15-game season, now 16 games, every team in the league could only play one short week game. So Sunday right. to Thursday, Sunday to Friday. So in order for us to find a home, find two teams who could play on Black Friday, we had to get creative. And what ended up happening was ownership voted to allow teams to play multiple short week games. That's new this year. So this is the first season we've got teams who are playing more than one short week. And we committed to them that we would spread them out. We wouldn't do them too close together. We wouldn't uh, use the buy in the wrong place, whether you got the two short weeks and you got the buy in between them, or you got your two short weeks up early and your buy later. Um, again, first year learning as we go, certainly we'll solicit feedback and they won't be shy about giving it to us, to the clubs that uh, did have to double up on their short weeks. But um that allowed us to take a team like the Jets and have them in a Thursday night game and then also in a Friday game. Obviously, in you know April and May, we thought Aaron Rodgers was going to be their quarterback, and we thought uh, the Jets were going to be relevant and interesting by the time we got to Week 12. Uh, they are both still relevant and interesting, even if Aaron Rodgers isn't the quarterback. And you know, putting a division game into Black Friday also – Again, nothing's a guarantee in this league, but all but ensures that the game's going to matter. Teams are going to play hard. It's going to mean something to somebody. So that was sort of the strategy. Find that right mix of uh, priority, brand awareness, playoff relevance, teams that we think are going to be in contention, you know, second half of the season. And also, you know, two big markets. You know, New York and uh, us partnering with the retail giant in this space and the retail capital of the world in New York kind of had some synergy, made some sense. I believe Amazon's going to have a little presence in the Macy's Thanksgiving parade the day before. Um, there were a lot of different touch points where New York felt right. And then looking for an opponent, um, you know, Dolphins Jets have decades of history and hopefully they give us another exciting one on Friday. Would you explain also the time involved? Because you you have limits to the window that you can play the game in. Explain that. Yeah, the National Football League does not play games on Friday nights due to high school and Saturdays due to college. Uh, after the first Friday in September until the third Saturday in December. So we won't play uh once we get into mid-September, we won't play Fridays and Saturdays. And once we get down into the late season, um, what we said was, or what the public law actually says, is that uh, we'll stay out of the primetime window. We'll stay out of Friday nights um, and Saturday nights, Saturday afternoons and Saturday nights. So as we started looking at Friday, talking to the legal team at our shop, um, talking to Washington, D.C., uh, felt like there was a window there kind of late afternoon. Uh, we know it's a college football day. There's going to be college football at noon that day. There's going to be college football at eight o'clock that night. Uh, and, and there's going to be college football in the afternoon too. But uh, if we slide into the afternoon there, that three o'clock, three o'clock time slot, again, not a national holiday, but kind of a national holiday. So we'll see what, uh, what kind of viewership we get. We'll see how competitive the game is. We'll see how the fans find it and follow it. 
this one will be interesting as I, as I think you hinted at this one's in front of the Amazon paywall. So you don't need to be an Amazon prime subscriber like you do right. for the rest of the Thursday night package. So anybody who's got Amazon, you know, you open the app and the game's going to be there. You go to amazon.com on your computer, the game's going to be there. So I think a lot of people are going to find it and uh, we'll see what kind of viewership and reaction we get. Um, and certainly continue to talk with, you know, our friends in college football and, uh, our friends in Washington, D.C., and make sure that we're we're in the right window that day. Look, I, I think one of the things that, in my opinion, I didn't know that this was going to happen, but one of the things that Amazon has sort of taken on is a challenge. They just didn't want to do a regular telecast. They wanted to do something now that they've established with this thing, Amazon Prime Vision. I think that's what it's called, where uh, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago that, you know, where they take uh, on defense and they try to give you after by using artificial intelligence who they think is going to blitz, you know, and sometimes and they draw a red circle around the guy. And or multiple guys, sometimes they don't draw any red circles because they don't think anybody's going to blitz. And, you know, in talking to Amazon, I thought it was really interesting when I asked uh, Sam Schwartzstein, the uh, the guy behind this. And I said, basically, what do you do for an encore? And he goes, well, we're going to figure out something new to do next year. There's going to be some new kind of tech gadget to do. And I just said, that's cool. Nobody is really reinventing the wheel in in television. It's it's they're all good shows, obviously, but Amazon's taking a bunch of chances and it's kind of fun. And I don't know how you guys in the league office look at it, but what have you thought of that? I think fun is the right word. I think we're always looking uh to partner, you know, with the broadcasters and try to figure out which innovation that comes next becomes you know irreplaceable i mean you mentioned a few years ago we never would have thought that you know we'd be broadcasting games on a retail website a few years ago we didn't used to have skycam you know for our games and now it's ubiquitous a few years before that the yellow first down line wasn't yeah. a thing watching NFL games. And now you can't imagine watching a game without it. So every time there's a new innovation, uh, a new production technique that our partners want to try, want to experiment with, uh, we've got a whole team of people led by Ani Bose and Blake Jones who uh, talk to the partners, talk to the officiating department, our player health and safety folks, the football operations team. Can we find a way to provide our fans with a new angle, a new wrinkle, a new audio source? Uh, and I think some of this data and analytics stuff kind of slots right in there. It's not for everybody. Um, you know, I've definitely talked to some people who don't like all the lines and circles over their football. Um, but for us nerds who really are fascinated by um, the trends and the analytics and some of the AI that goes into some of the predictive stuff, it, it's amazing. And Amazon's the perfect home for that. You've got a 
you know, regular broadcast, just like you're used to seeing. It sounds and feels just like an NFL broadcast. Al Michaels certainly helps when he's on the microphone. Fred Goodelli produced it that first year. Like, that's a good way to ensure that it's going to look and sound like an NFL game. But you've got alternate broadcasts, right? You've got the stats feed like you're talking about. You've got uh, Hannah and Andrea doing a feed for themselves. You've got the guys from Dude Perfect. You've got LeBron. Um, There's so many other ways that Amazon's been able to experiment just based on their platform. And I think you said it right. It's fun. It's interesting. Uh, I don't want to say everybody's copying them because some of this came earlier, but these ideas of the alt casts is is not new, right? Peyton and Eli have been great for the last couple of years. ESPN's been doing stuff around uh, the College Football National Championship, whether it's the Homer feed, if that's what they call it, where they've got, you know, the University of Georgia guys and the Ohio State guys. Um, th- there's no shortage of, of interesting things we can try and our fans will tell us, you know, what's relevant and, and what they're not interested in. Mike, let's uh, get into a couple of other quick topics. Uh, let's talk about Joe Burrow. So Cincinnati was going to be a big chunk of the last month or so of the season. They're on Monday night football in week 13 at Jacksonville. They have one of those TBD games against Minnesota in week 15, that's you're trying to determine which three games are going to be played on Saturday. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And you pick from a pool of how many? Five. Five. Okay. So, uh, and then week 16, Saturday national game at Pittsburgh. And then week 17, they're in the doubleheader window at Kansas City, which, you know, has been an absolutely fantastic game with Burrow dueling Mahomes. So how much does the Burrow injury hurt? And can you see any of these games being flexed? Look, that's the point of flexible scheduling. Um, We'll see what happens. There's still a lot of football to be played. And you know that the Bengals aren't going to shut it down. I mean, they're still in this thing. What are they, a half a game out of the seven seed? Uh, Nobody's going to feel sorry for them. And um they'll get the next man up and they'll be ready to go but there's no question losing a guy like burrow hurts that's you know one of the risks that the scheduling team faces every year in april and may when we're putting this puzzle together which of these games do you deploy early in the season because you're worried that they might not hold up if you save them for too late and which of these games do you feel pretty good about saving for december when you got to figure these teams are going to be playing for something and yeah, you mentioned it, four, three or four Bengals games on national television in December. Sure seems to imply that the scheduling team thought since he was going to be there, um, they still are. I, I don't think there's going to be a rush to judgment. I don't think we're going to change anything today. But yeah. certainly keep our eyes up and and let's see what happens to the Bengals over the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, with the 18-week season and the extra playoff team now, seven out of 16 get in. That seven seed you know, if you're hovering around 500 in December, you're in it. And they're yeah. hovering around 500 in December, so they're in it. If they can get a game or two, I'm sure they're going to look at teams, you know, like the Jets who, you know, lost their quarterback but didn't end the season and the defense carried them for a while and they're in this thing too. So um, disappointing, you know, sad for him, heartbreaking for, uh, you know, Bengals fans, but uh, certainly the other 15 teams in the AFC aren't going to, give them any sympathy and um, let's see what happens over the next couple of weeks before we write them off. Mike, the, the uh, you have not flexed. I believe, have you flexed anything yet this year? 
I'm we moved to a, we moved the Lions Buccaneers game to 425. Technically right. not flex, but same yeah. idea. Trying to get a game into a bigger yeah. national window. Uh, that was earlier in the season when they both got off to good starts. But no, haven't flexed for Sunday night football yet. Uh, Monday night flex officially becomes an option Thanksgiving weekend, and Thursday night flex officially becomes an option the following week. So uh, have not flexed yet on Sunday night. Uh, due in large part, I think, to the fact that, you know, we've we've been in the first half of the season. Uh, I know a lot of people were wondering if maybe Bears Chargers was a good candidate for flexible scheduling. Um, you know, certainly didn't know that Justin Fields was going to miss the game. Uh, but it's hard to tell any team that, you know, you're no longer relevant, that you're not playing for anything in week eight. You know, it was only last year, right, that Detroit was out to a one and six start and went into the final week of the season playing for a playoff spot. So, Nobody's out of it, I don't think, in our minds in week eight. Uh, yeah. Bears-Chargers was still relevant, was still a good game. Uh, Jets-Raiders the following week. We took some, I think, good-natured grief for sticking with Mini Denver for this weekend two weeks ago when we didn't flex out of it. And now that game looks pretty interesting and pretty compelling. So it's early season. Hard to say anybody's out of it. Um the bar for flex maybe has shifted a little. Maybe it's a little bit higher than we're used to. I think that's due in part to the fact that, you know, we've got multiple partners now for flexible scheduling. So it's not just about solely what's best for Sunday night. It's about what's the right way to dole out these appearances for all of our teams across Sunday night, Monday night, and Thursday night. Still trying to, you know, stick to our principles. Um, you know, the game really needs to be, you know, no longer have playoff implications, not as compelling as we thought isn't a reason to get out of it, but no longer relevant. Maybe that's a reason to get out of it. What can you get into? CBS and Fox get to protect games. We've got some limits about where. Don't you get? Don't you? Don't you weekend. have each network gets to protect a minimum yep. of one per week? Uh, a maximum, uh, an exact a maximum of one. Yeah. CBS and Fox each get to protect a game each week. So when you look at the schedule and you say, "Oh, why don't they just move that game to Sunday night?" It's potentially because CBS or Fox protected it. So yeah. look, we're, we'll flex when we need to. There's no question about it. Um, haven't flexed yet. There's been a few years where we hadn't flexed at all. I think twice in the last four or five years, you know, if the crystal ball is that clear in May and all the Sunday night games hold up, then we don't need to flex. But as we go down the stretch here, we've certainly got our eyes on a couple and uh, let's see what the next couple of weeks bring. And uh, if the mood is right and everybody agrees, um yeah won't be won't be scared to pull the trigger if we have to mike uh what are the rules as to when you have to the length of time that you have both on monday night and on thursday night uh that you you know the amount of time you have to give teams yeah, look, we give teams a lot of notice. Like if we think four or five weeks down the road, you're a candidate for flex, either flexing out of Sunday night or flexing into Sunday night, you'll get a heads up from our office. Nobody's going to be blindsided by this. They'll know we're talking about it. We meet with the commissioner regularly and kind of do some aim high steering, some looking ahead to what might be coming down the pike. So uh, we can flex. We'll make flex decisions. We'll make flex changes for Sunday nights on two weeks notice. Until we get to mid-December. 13 uh, days, right? Yeah, 12, 13 days, exactly. Um, Same thing for Monday nights, two weeks out. So right after week 12, we'll decide on the Monday night of week 14. Right after week 13, we'll decide on the Monday night for week 15. So two weeks out for most Sundays, two weeks out 
for most Mondays, four weeks out for Thursdays, just right. because of the change. Uh, and then as we get uh, into the final weeks of the season, we'll make Sunday afternoon and Sunday night changes on only one week notice, as you know better than anybody when you get down to the end like that. Two weeks out, you make a decision, and then this team loses and that team wins, and suddenly the game you thought was for all the marbles now no longer has playoff implications. We don't want to be in that situation. So final three, four weeks of the year, we can do some Sunday changes on only one week's notice. So you have already determined, for instance, because you can change, you can flex on Monday night weeks 12 through 17, right? And so you've already decided in week, let's see, it's week 14, New England at Pittsburgh, that stays. For Thursday night, that one stays. Uh, For Thursday night. That change would have had to have been made two weeks ago. And, you know, two weeks ago, impossible to say that, you know, certainly Pittsburgh's going to be relevant. And, um, you know, these last two weeks. That's a good game anyway. Listen, that's a good game anyway. (laughs) Because it's Belichick, it's the Patriots, and it's everybody loves the Steelers around the country. You're going to get an audience for a Steelers game if you put it on national TV. That's our stream, whichever. So that that I didn't think. Now maybe you, have you already then also determined that the uh, uh, Chargers and the Raiders stay. That decision would need to be made after this weekend. But as we're sitting here today, I think we should expect that two teams with records right around the 500 mark yeah. playing, you know, for a game. You know, as we get late in the season like this, those division games, if you're hovering around 500, they almost become playoff games of their own, right? They're really kind of yeah. an elimination game. You could see getting to that week and the loser of Chargers Raiders might be out. So, yeah. you know, I think that's all we're looking for when you put a game on the schedule in May that by the time you get to it in December, one or both teams is is playing for something. Yeah. The last thing I would ask you, I'm really curious because I went to the game in Frankfurt, uh, Miami and Kansas City. Um, as you know, the, the fervor overseas for the NFL is pretty big. And, but I wonder, what have you found about the 9.30 window. I believe this year you had five games in the 9.30 window. And I wonder, do you see the day, maybe in the next media package, that you would have literally a package of games at 9.30 in the morning? Uh, However many, because look, I think at some point you'll probably increase the number of games you play outside the United States. So who knows? Maybe there's six or eight games that could be played conveniently uh, at at 9.30 in the morning Eastern time. So what do you think of that window? Yeah, look, I might challenge you when you say played conveniently. It's not convenient. It's a challenge, uh, you know, both for the teams going over there and obviously for the scheduling team trying to find it. Um, But look, as as a fan... I love it. I love waking up and there's football on and you go all day long. I know, you know, 12, 14 hours is a lot to sit in front of the couch, but um, as a fan, I love it as 
the league, like you said, has evolved its strategy around the international games, I think it stands to reason that the quality of some of those games is starting to tick up a little bit. It's no longer just, you know, volunteers or teams that have been awarded Super Bowls or playing in temporary facilities or however it was that Peter O'Reilly and the international team had to source home teams, designated teams for international games. Ownership voted and they passed a rule. Everybody's going to go. So, you know, that's how you end up with a Kansas City Chiefs game over there. We're going to get a Cowboys game. We're Eagles, 49ers. We're going to have all the big brands playing international games here, rotating across all 32. And, you know, whether by luck or by intention, some of those are going to be bigger maybe than, you know, we've seen in the past. Uh, there's going to be ones, look, a, a good example, really, honestly, is Seattle, Tampa, in Germany from last year. Right. When we put that game on the schedule, Seattle was a question mark. They just traded away Russell Wilson, and Tom Brady had just retired. And yet Seattle, Tampa was going to be the Germany game. Then it turns into Tom Brady unretiring and Geno Smith comeback player of the year and Seahawks relevant again. And all of a sudden that became the biggest game we've ever had overseas. The previous year it was Packers Giants, the biggest game we've ever had overseas this year, Miami, Kansas City. I don't know what we do for an encore next year, but um, certainly the more windows we have and the more teams that have to go or are willing to go the more likely that we're going to stumble into a good one every now and then blind squirrel finds a nut, but uh, it's a challenge. No question for the schedule makers, but a a fun one and love, love waking up on those Sundays and right into live football. It's it, it makes a Sunday even better. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing and then I'm going to ask you one last question and let you go. So Mark Donovan, the uh, uh, president of the Kansas city franchise told me, the night before the game, he said, we don't want to wait eight years. We want to come back before then. Because, look, a lot of people say, oh, it's a pain in the rear end for these teams. And, of course, in a football sense, Andy Reid would like to play that game at Arrowhead Stadium, obviously. But for a future of football for the business of this franchise and for the business of the NFL, that was, I'll tell you what, that was, that was crazy over there with the, with the Kansas city uh, of buying a, or I'm sorry, outfitting a 250 foot yacht in Kansas city colors, putting their Super Bowl trophies on there, bringing Roger Goodell and Clark hunt uh, to be sort of guest bartenders there. It just, You know, it just had the feel of something exceedingly festive. And Mark Donovan, I I mean, look, you're not going to have to twist Clark Hunt's arm when when they have nine home games at some point. They're not going to want to give away a Tyreek Hill game, but, you know, but you're not going to have any problem, I don't think, either four or six years down the road getting them to go again. That's one thing. But my other question is, and I should know this, but I don't, what, relatively speaking, is the difference between how many people watch that game at 9.30 in the morning on NFL Network versus would have watched that game, let's just say, at 4.25 Eastern Time on a Sunday afternoon? First of all, how many people watch that game 
And what do you think the rating would have been had it uh, had you done it as a Sunday doubleheader game? When Kansas City volunteered, to your point, they volunteered. They were eager to go to Germany. They've got marketing rights over there. Yeah. Your point is is well taken. These clubs, whether they have played over there or not, are still marketing themselves over there. They have you know activations. They have shows. They have fan groups. They have jersey sales and team stores. I think like. This is this wasn't just sudden. This was Kansas City spending years cultivating an audience in Germany and then paying it off with a visit. Any opponent that Kansas City would have brought over there with them would have been a phenomenal experience. And, you know, you and I talked about this way back when the schedule came out. We were talking about what was the right Kansas City game for kickoff. And I think yeah. folks were a little surprised that Detroit ended up in that time slot. They seem to have justified that selection. Um, but if Detroit's in kickoff and you're still holding a Philadelphia, a Cincinnati, Buffalo in your hand, those are probably heading to your point to our more traditional big windows. Um, we don't have a long history of sending division opponents over there. So you almost kind of backed into Miami as the opponent. You know, there were question marks around Miami back in May. Don't forget, we didn't know how healthy Tua was going to be. Um, right. Skylar Thompson was the quarterback in the wild card game. Like, there were questions around them, too. So not to say that this was, you know, a, a, a tier B game, if you will, for Kansas City, but it, it wasn't really one of the jump off the page games. And your point about the question about viewership is exactly why that game in Germany, uh, Chiefs Dolphins drew a little over 10 million all in um, a record for anything we've done in the 930 a.m. window. Uh, you know, you've been with the NBC family for a while. Sunday night games do twice that you know regularly and the sunday afternoon games at 425 you get a big dallas a big kansas city game in there uh you're talking 23 25 sometimes 28 million people so um you know it's all about like we always say these 272 games these 272 assets that belong to our fans we want to make sure we deploy them in the way so that you know fans can watch the games that they care about and yeah we probably uh, would have done 2x, 2.5x if that Dolphins-Chiefs right. game had been on a Sunday afternoon. But it would have been a different Chiefs game that would have been in that window. And it still would have probably been the most watched international game just with Kansas City and their allure and uh, all the excitement around that game. Um, I, I hope that's a you know a, a, another bar that we can meet next year when we make next year's uh, international schedule, but that's all part of the calculus. And it all comes back just to tie it back to black Friday. You know, we don't know what, uh, the viewership's going to be on black Friday. So, you know, you got to pick a game that maybe isn't one of the top five games of the year, at least as we look at the list in may, but it's not coming out of, you know, the tier at the bottom where you're guessing about which teams may or may not be relevant. So, um, you know, trying to thread that needle, find the right mix for all of our partners, for all of our fans, for all of our clubs, you know, asking a lot of Miami. Miami's playing in Germany, coming back, playing on Black Friday for the first time, coming back and making a run at a division title. Um, you know, this is not without challenges for, for everybody. Obviously, the schedule makers will tell you how hard it is for them, but um, we'll, we'll always figure it out. And uh, our fans generally seem to find our games wherever we put them. Um, that's a testament to them. And we'll keep trying to find good windows to put our best product in. Mike North, Vice Vice President of Broadcast Planning for the National Football League. Really appreciate you taking some time and uh, educating me and educating the people who will listen. I'll tell you, there's a lot of people right now who are 
in the car driving to grandma's house uh, in Thanksgiving week. And I guarantee you, because I've gotten a ton of emails about A, the Black Friday game, and B, about the flexing situation and why have there not been many games flexed. So I appreciate you answering all those questions and good good luck the rest of the way. And you know what? Maybe Jake Browning will turn into uh will turn into Brock Purdy. You never know. <laughs> maybe uh maybe he can date Taylor Swift. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> hey listen, all the best to you, Mike. Thank you. Always good to talk to you, Peter. Take care. ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Back on the podcast, and my sincere thanks uh, to Mike North for his. Uh, for kind of leading us through not only what is going on on the week of the Black Friday game, but also I kind of think it's very interesting that the NFL made a big bet on the Bengals and have them on potentially four times on national TV, uh, you know, at the end of this season and now may have to rejigger one or two. But anyway, good on Mike to tell us all that. Um, I'm now joined by Miles Simmons. And Miles, I, I think there were so many interesting things that happened during the course of uh, early week 11, and both on Thursday and on Sunday. And I want to address these things, not in chronological order, but I think in order of importance. Number one, the Buffalo Bills saved their season. They didn't play... Um, a great team, but I thought because of everything that had happened to him, Josh Allen told me Sunday night, this week was a gut punch. And so, I, you know, they were kind of fortunate to play the Jets and they got a tough schedule coming up. Give me your impression of what you saw with the Bills and what you think of the Bills going forward now after firing their offensive coordinator and playing so impressively. Yeah, I, I think that they certainly needed to do what they did against the Jets. I mean, it was a big definitive win, right? They got the Jets to replace Zach Wilson. And after everything that Buffalo's kind of been through over the course of the year, losing to Zach Wilson on the opening Monday night football game after Aaron Rodgers goes down four plays into the thing, they needed to get some positive vibes. And so you can't come out of that game with anything but those positive vibes because it wasn't like it was close and they barely won. They look like the Buffalo Bills 
that we've kind of become accustomed to seeing where they just kind of bludgeon the bad teams. And you need to do that sometimes, right? Good teams keep losing, teams losing. The Jets, not a very good football team right now, even though they have a solid defense, but you didn't really see too much of the turnover lapses. Yes, I know Josh Allen had that interception toward the end of the first half, but you have at least a cohesive offense now, at least based on what it looked like on Sunday. You have the vibe of, all right, we know we can do these things, right? The defense continued to play well. The Bills needed to do that. And so, yeah, going forward, it's not going to be easy, but at least you have that building block where you can say, yeah, we made a change. It worked out for one week. Let's build on it. And you have something that maybe you can start rolling now. Bills right now, six and five. Uh, They have dug themselves, obviously, a huge hole with that early loss to the Jets, with the inexcusable loss to Denver a week ago. So now I think they, you know, Josh Allen said to me, he said, listen, to sniff the playoffs, you probably got to win 10. And I agree Mm -hmm. with him. So to get to 10 now, that means essentially the Buffalo Bills down the stretch are going to have to go four and two. And I think what that means is that obviously they've got to win at least one of their next three. They got the toughest Mm -hmm. schedule over the next three games of any team in football at Philadelphia, then the bye at Kansas city and then Dallas at home. And so if you are the Buffalo bills, I think you have to go one and two in that, in that stretch because you end at the chargers, you know, on that, on Christmas weekend, and then you play new England at home. And then you're at Miami in week 18. The interesting thing about a week 18 game at Miami, I think, is what if the Dolphins have already clinched their division and cannot win home field in the playoffs? What mm-hmm. if that's the case? Or yeah. what if they've clinched the division and clinched home field, whatever? What if they have little to play for other than maybe a second or third seed? Would they rest to a you know, and not want to expose them? Would they rest Tyreek Hill? So I can't tell you right now whether that last game of the season is going to be really hard for Buffalo or whether they're going to be facing a depleted Miami team. But Buffalo now goes into Philadelphia, Kansas City, and then Dallas at home, knowing somehow, some way, at a bare minimum, they've got to win one of those games. Let's stay on the field in Buffalo. The New York Jets finally, finally, mercifully, I thought, bench Zach Wilson. Uh, I think Robert Sala has no choice but to start either Tim Boyle or um, uh, or Trevor Simeon in the Black Friday game. Not that it matters, really. But, Miles, my question is not necessarily about this, but it's about the news reports we heard over the weekend, um, and there's been a rumbling, a drumbeat that Aaron Rodgers is really going to try hard to come back this year. And I guess my question is, the Jets right now at four and six, and I think there's a good chance they go to four and seven on Friday afternoon at MetLife Stadium. If you see the season slipping away like this, and you're Robert Sala, or you're Joe Douglas, 
Don't you have to be the adult in the room and tell uh, Aaron Rodgers, hey, we really appreciate you working so hard, but let's uh, pull the plug on any attempt to play this year. I, I, yes, I, I think so. And I think if they had defeated the Bills, then maybe we could have a different conversation, but they didn't, right? So now they go into this Black Friday game. And if you end up at four and seven, we were just talking about with Josh Allen. Now you said, you know, you have to have 10 wins probably to sniff the playoffs, especially in the AFC where, you know, look, Cleveland just made it to seven wins on Sunday. And now they're playing with uh, Thompson Robinson as their quarterback. And who knows if they'll turn to Joe Flacco or not. But yeah. the fact that they already have seven wins right now means that they're in a really good position to make that playoff push. And yes, Cincinnati, you know, you're, you're not necessarily thinking about them, but you got the Houston Texans, they're six and four. The Steelers are six and four. So all of that is to say, if the Jets already get to seven losses, man, like it, it's going to be tough for them to really make it to the postseason. And I think because of that, despite the fact that Aaron Rodgers seems to be doing, you know, a tremendous job of rehabbing, getting himself in a position where this could be a legitimate conversation, I think that if you've got something where your quarterback is as old as Aaron Rodgers is, I don't, I really don't know that it makes that much sense to rush him back when you want to make a championship push next year. Sometimes you just yeah. have to think about the long-term consequences. Uh, Miles, the ratings game of week 12, I -hmm. think is going to be the Sunday doubleheader Buffalo at Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. The football game of week 12, I think is, uh, Jacksonville at Houston. Oh yeah. For the basically for AFC South supremacy. So people look at the standings and say, well, how can you say it's for supremacy? Because even if Houston wins, they're only tied for the division lead. True. But Houston would if Houston wins, Houston would then have a series sweep against Jacksonville. So Houston would own the tiebreaker. I would argue that Houston's schedule is slightly easier down the stretch than Jacksonville's because Jacksonville in consecutive weeks, a couple of weeks from now, is at Cleveland and then Baltimore at home. So, look, they could win both those games, but those are going to be tough games. Mm -hmm. So who do you like in Jacksonville at Houston Sunday in Texas? No, I think I like Jacksonville, um, and it's early in the week, and I, I don't know if it's just because of the way that Jacksonville sort of rebounded you know, when they played Tennessee on Sunday, and they certainly needed a big rebound after that big loss that they had to the 49ers. But I think going into this game, maybe you see some things where C.J. Stroud, who threw a few picks in that game on Sunday, you start to pick up some stuff on film you know, where you can feel a little bit good about yourself. And I just like the way that Doug Peterson and Trevor Lawrence almost always seem to be on the same page. Now, Trevor Lawrence is all also a guy who will turn it over in spots and at points, and I think that there needs to be a, a little bit more consistency. But I guess I just like the guy who's been in the league a little bit longer against C.J. Stroud, who is starting to look a little bit like a rookie more than he has over the course of the regular season, Peter, if that makes sense. I want to um, 
I would take Houston at home. But yeah. if Jacksonville airs it out the way that Doug Peterson and offensive coordinator Press Taylor did on Sunday against Tennessee, uh, I might rethink my position. But I kind of like Houston in that game, playing at home, rallying. Uh, they're very, very interesting team right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get to oh, a game that, in an ideal world, we probably would never talk about, and that's Giants at Commanders. The reason, I think there's two things. I mean, first of all, it's such a cool story that Tommy DeVito won this game. He's a guy who grew up 11 miles from Giants Stadium, who is in the same town, Cedar Grove, New Jersey, that, I mean, I coached and watched 50 softball games when I lived in New Jersey and my daughter played and Cedar Grove and our town Montclair were, were big rivals uh, in high school softball. So I know everything about Cedar Grove. I know the, the restaurants. I mean, you know, it's a great, it's a cool <laughs> spot. It's very, very Jersey. And Tommy DeVito is very, very Jersey and it's cool. But Let's look, let's not necessarily for the cool story, but let's look for the real story coming out of this game. And that is, I don't see how Ron Rivera has much of a chance to keep his job now. I mean, he got swept this year by the New York Giants. The Giants have three wins, two of them against Ron Rivera and the Washington Commanders. Go back to last year, and Ron Rivera is 0-3-1 against the New York Giants in the last two years. And look, I, I don't care what anybody says. Look, the Giants and Washington are not in the same league with the top two teams in this division. Even though the Eagles have a matchup problem with Washington, um, you know, the Eagles and Dallas are clearly better than both the Giants and Commanders. And now the Giants are, with Tommy DeVito, are clearly better than Washington I think Josh Harris, the new owner, has seen everything he needs to see. Um, I think the biggest question is not whether he makes a coaching change, but whether he clears out the entire front office. And I I don't have much of a feeling about whether he will, but I definitely think this is a very bad week for Ron Rivera's coaching security. Uh, It's certainly, and, you know, they've got the short week with the game against the Cowboys on Thursday, but, you know, maybe when you said the biggest question is not if he's going to move on from Harris going to move on from Ron Rivera, but you know, uh, if he'll move on from the entire front office, I mean, I think the bigger question is when it happens. Right. And so because they have the short week this week, we call it black Friday, you know, it may not just be because of the shopping prices, right? I mean, I think that that's something that we should keep yeah. an eye on. You never know. If, from the nation's capital, if that if the commanders go out and they play poorly and they lose to the Cowboys. And I think, you know, Irvin Magic Johnson, the limited partner in Josh Harris's group, tweets yesterday after the game, wow, my Washington commanders turned the ball over six times today. And gave the Giants 24 points off turnovers. We lost 31 to 19. I mean, I know Magic Johnson is not the most uh, eloquent tweeter, but I think when 
you get that from Magic Johnson on Twitter, like that kind of encapsulates everything that's going wrong with the commanders. And then also you get the fact that the showers were working after the game. So, uh, you know, stinker on the field, stinker off the yeah. field, I guess. Yeah, as I, uh, as I said in my column, the commanders had to go commando after that game. Um, <laughs> let's go to one. It's a, one other game yesterday, or I'm sorry, uh, Sunday. We are recording this on Monday, but you're probably listening to it on Tuesday or Wednesday, so I don't want to say yesterday. But one game that really fascinated me for a couple of reasons was Detroit-Chicago. Detroit comes back with 17 points in the last four minutes uh, to win this game. Uh, I was so impressed as I wrote my column. I wrote the lead to my column on Jared Goff. So impressed with Goff, his approach, uh, and his attitude, everything, and how he just had this attitude, taking the ball with four minutes to go, needing two touchdowns. We got enough time. We're going to do this. We're going to be fine. I'm not going to worry about what happened in the first 55 minutes of this game. I know it's easy to say that, but you could tell I watched the last five minutes of this game. Jared Goff, in the immortal words of Stuart Scott, was as cool as the other side of the pillow. And that's what you want your quarterback to be. And I really appreciated that. Uh, But on the other hand, I didn't hate what I saw to Justin Fields at all. Justin Fields had a quarterback rating of right around 100, and he ran for 100 yards. I mean, how many times has that ever happened in NFL history? I don't know. Not many. But I think Justin Fields, look, last week Ryan Poles and Matt Eberflus basically let it be known that uh, we think Justin Fields is our quarterback of the future. And a lot of people just said, oh, they're just saying that. Maybe they are. But I can just tell you this right now, watching yesterday, watching Justin Fields throw a dart strike touchdown to DJ Moore. I mean, I don't know that I want to go out right now and change quarterbacks when we're not sure that Justin Fields is not going to be really good somewhere. And I know Bears fans have already totally given up. We're done with Fields. He's gone. Bring in the next victim. But at some point, you've got to stick with a quarterback. You've got to dedicate yourself to him. I like Justin Fields. I think he's pretty good. Now, if you fall madly in love with Caleb Williams or one of the young guys in this draft, uh, maybe you fall in love with him and maybe you make a change. But I believe that Justin Fields has a chance, coached the right way with the right supporting cast, to be a well above average NFL quarterback. He could be. Um, I I don't know if he's going to make it there. I don't know if he's going to make it there under this particular coaching staff either. It's interesting because when you lose a game as the Chicago Bears did, and it's not the first time they lost a game like that this year, I think you got to start thinking about kind of everything from a global perspective. And is this working? Is what we're doing working? Now, Detroit's a good team, and that's obvious. And, you know, their results speak for themselves that way. 
But I think you really do need the rest of this season to evaluate Justin Fields, first of all, and what he's going to potentially be. Also, the coaching staff with Matt Eberflus and everybody else that's there, I think you really need to take a look at what they're doing. Is it working? What do they do well? And then you assess that. Because, look, this is a team that is likely, let's say, going to have the number one overall pick because the Carolina Panthers are awful. Right. They are the only one win team in the National Football League. And I don't know, no matter who's calling the offensive plays, how they're going to be able to get themselves out of that right now, just based on what they've done and what their results are. And of course, because the Bears have that pick, that means that they're going to have to make another big decision in the coming offseason as to whether or not they want to keep Justin Fields or move on and get one of these guys that's going to be coming out at the top of the draft. It, it's going to be a fascinating decision, but I, I do think you should take if you're the bears the rest of this season to truly evaluate what's going on yeah. and, and what the future can be. And that's not, right. it's one of those things where, you know, we can come to the conclusion with Ron Rivera, right. But I, I really do think you need these last, however many games, six, seven games for the bears. Last topic of our segment together this week, miles is the Carolina Panthers. And I'm very oh. curious uh, about how you feel and whether you even noticed, because, I mean, there's 94 pregame shows on, who do you watch, who do you listen to, whatever. But when Jay Glazer tells the, the country that Frank Reich is on the hottest seat in the NFL, I, I respect his information on that. And my feeling, as I wrote in my column, is that you know I think David Tepper is has is being a bad bad owner if he's seriously considering making a change here and I'll tell you why since 2019 in less than 4 years in the last 40 uh 47 months okay, he has fired Ron Rivera fired interim coach Perry Fuel fired Matt Rule fired uh, Steve, interim coach Steve Wilkes, and now, if this is to be believed, might fire uh, 10 games into or whenever it happens into his first year as coach, Frank Reich. So I guess my question is, if you dismiss five coaches in four years or four years in a month, what does that say about you? You know, it's my, say, my point about about Mark Davis. Of course yeah. the Raiders are playing better now with Antonio Pierce, all right? But let's go back to the decision when you handed the franchise to Dave Ziegler and Josh McDaniels, and less than two years later, you blow it all up, and you pay them. I think Adam Schefter said they were owed that, and, the staff, and staff members are going to be owed $80 million. And mm-hmm. everybody said, well, who cares? It's not your money. Let them pay him, get a new coach. That's not the issue. It is not the issue. The issue is, in this case, let's talk about Carolina. Carolina has had three full-time head coaches in the last four years. You know what David Tepper did before he owned the Carolina Panthers? For nine years, he was a minority owner in his native Pittsburgh, he was a minority. He owned 5% of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So 
in four years in Carolina, he's had three coaches, all right? And in the last six, uh, the last uh, 54 years in Pittsburgh, they've had three coaches. And my whole point is not to say, oh, gee, let's pat Dan Rooney and the Rooney family on the back again. It isn't that. It's to say, if you're changing coaches as often as you change your underwear, you're not helping your team become good for the long term. If you are so disenchanted with Frank Reich after nine months on the job or 10 months, whatever it is, why'd you hire him in the first place? What is it about your process Mm-hmm. That leads you to believe that you're a good decision maker, you know, and, and just maybe, maybe, maybe he should just get out of the way for a while and, and not be knee jerk because this team has started one and nine or whatever they are. But I don't know how you feel about this. I'm just, I, I just, I heard about this yesterday. I just shook my head and I said, what is, what's wrong with this guy? This isn't a hedge fund, man. This is an NFL team with human beings. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, uh, first of all, when Jay Glazer says something, he's one of those guys where, you know, he's really talking to the sources and he's not making something up like that. So when Jay Glazer says it, you know, I I feel like that's a very well-sourced and well-reported story. So I I believe it. Now, I think that there's kind of two things, right? It's one, how did you, and you kind of hit the nail on the head with this, the process, right? How did you get to making this decision where you moved on from Steve Wilkes, who I thought did a hell of a job as the interim coach, taking Six and six with a bad team. Exactly. You know, without Christian McCaffrey, for the most part, after they traded him to San Francisco. So that's your best offensive player. You remove him. They're playing Baker Mayfield, P.J. Walker, and Sam Darnold at quarterback, and he still goes six and six. And they were in the division race because the NFC South, like this year, last year, was so bad throughout the course of that. So you end up going with somebody in Frank Reich who had been fired. You know, but you think of him as somebody who understands offenses, is kind of this offensive guru. You pack his coaching staff with all kinds of people who have great reputations, and you want to try it that way. And there's a part of me that appreciates going that route, especially after the route they went with Matt Rule, right? And I understand why Tepper decided to move on from Ron Rivera when he did new ownership group at that time. Ron Rivera had been there for a long time. It probably was time to get some new energy, some new life, and something a little bit different in terms of their thinking into that building. But then you go with Matt Rule, and things don't work out. Fine. You move on from Matt Rule. I thought that that was the right decision. Now, it's just when you then hire Frank Reich and you decide to give the keys to the franchise to him and Bryce Young, and it looks as bad as it has, in Tepper's mind, it might be, okay, well, this is something that we did that's not working out. And based on what you see offensively right now, yeah, it's not. I don't know if time is the remedy here. Or if you're Tepper and you are impatient and we've seen how he fires coaches with the Charlotte FC team as well, like that, it doesn't shock me, I'll put it this way, that we are in this path. And I think there might be some merit 
to saying, okay, if you make a bad decision, don't double down on it. But also, do we really know that the decision was bad at this point? I don't know. I think yeah, we don't. if you go into next year and then it continues to look this poorly, then maybe you could say, well, yeah, we should have cut bait you know, when we had the chance after one season. Maybe not. I, I don't know. But I, I think it's just there's a lot there that you have to look at and evaluate and say, okay, is this working or is it not? And this is another one where I, I think it would be valuable to have the full season as evidence as opposed to, you know, just a few months. I, I think that it would behoove the Panthers to go through this season, see if they can make some sort of late season push where you understand the improvement and then head into the off season. And if they have one win after 18 weeks, I wouldn't be surprised if Tepper decides to move on. I really wouldn't. And I think that there can be some justification in that, but I do think that at this point, it, it's best to, you know, it, uh, suppress that voice inside. If you're David Tepper, that's saying, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. We only have one win. I can't believe yeah. this. I can't believe, it. you know, you, sometimes you just got to be a little bit more patient. My, my, my biggest problem with all this is that, okay, let's say they go one in 16 or two in 15, whatever it is. I, I, I just keep coming back to it. Okay. All right. So now you're going to start the process all over again. All right. You're going to get, I guess, a new general manager, new head coach. I, I don't know what he's going to do, but yeah. whatever he does, whatever he does, tell me the process that is going to lead you to make a better decision than you made with Matt rule or Frank, Wright. Tell me, yes. Tell me yeah. what it is. Yes. You got dissatisfied with Matt Rule very early on. You got dissatisfied with Frank Reich very early on. Okay, so, and maybe you're just George Steinbrenner and you're going to be unhappy with anybody. But if you're George Steinbrenner in today's sports landscape, you're not going to win. You're not going to win. Mm -hmm. You can't win in football changing administrations, regimes all the time. You can't win. Right. You're not going to win. So anyway, that's all I would say. Miles, listen, I want to wish you a happy Cleveland Thanksgiving. Uh, have a great one. Have a wonderful week. And please, for at least a few days, at least maybe one day, don't worry about football. It's still going to be here when you get back. <laughs> and uh, have fun with your family. Have a great time. I will certainly try, and I would wish you the same as you go and you, you head out and travel to spend time with your family. Miles, so thank you, and we're going to take a break right now. When we come back for the last part of our podcast this week, uh, it's a long one this week, but I figured, hey, you're on your way to Grandma's house. You need a good quality long podcast to talk about football. I'm going to come back with Scott Hallenbeck, the CEO and, and executive director of USA Football, because recently we saw that the Olympics were now going to be hosting flag football, both men and women. I was kind of, flag football in the Olympics? Come on, stop it. And I still might feel that way a little bit, but <laughs> it's interesting. And 
There are a lot more people playing flag football around the world than I knew. And some of them are beating the United States at it. So anyway, we're going to get into it with Scott Hallenbeck right after our break. This is the Peter King Podcast. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. So we're back with Scott Hallenbeck, the CEO and executive director of USA Football, and one of the real key people to uh, getting flag football established as an Olympic sport, both for men and women. Um, we are now, what, five years away, I guess, Scott, in 2028. So, Scott, I'll I'll lead off with that. I'm not the biggest flag football advocate. I think it's a great game. I'm happy that so many people are doing it. I've learned a lot about uh, especially girls playing flag now and how much they love it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had a long talk with Rich McKay of the Atlanta Falcons in training camp this year, and he talked a lot about all the schools in Georgia that are playing and the fact that the three levels of championship in that state tournament, they were all going to have their championship game at the, uh, at their stadium, you know, Mercedes Benz stadium and how excited they were about that. So Scott, I guess I'll start by saying, what do you think was the key to making this, to getting it over the goal line and making it an Olympic sport? Well, so first of all, um, the there's every, as you probably know, every sport has an international federation. So the most obvious would be FIFA for soccer or FIBA for basketball, yeah. et cetera. And ours is what we call IFAF, International Federation of American Football, some 70 mem- members around the world. Uh, we, we do tackle and flag. Uh, we have women's tackle world championships, men's tackle world championships. We have men's and women's flag world championships. So frankly, we were focused on both in our discussions with the International Olympic Committee for years and years and years. It really was around the 2018-2019 period uh, where we started to you know, ask some very direct questions. And do we? does the IOC believe that uh, tackle has a real chance in the Olympics. And long story short, it came down mostly to the challenges around their 10,500 athlete cap. Uh, and so the idea of you know, 45 athletes on the men's side, 45 athletes on the women's side times at least eight countries became just untenable in terms of yeah. potential impact. So again, like you've seen with uh, rugby, 
fifth or traditionally 15s. They had to go to sevens to get in the Olympics. You've probably seen with rug, uh, lacrosse, traditionally 10s are going to go with sixes. So long story short is we realized that the better option, the, the viable option was flak. And so we asked the simple question. There was interest in that. We then started having conversations with the likes of the NFL and a bunch of other stakeholders. And long story short is that had traction. So, and then you already mentioned it when the floodgates opened and actually great to hear about Rich McKay and the Falcons. I mean, they were true leaders in this and really the, the NFL clubs have been, you know, really since that time leaders to push now eight States that have girls flag as a varsity sport. I just never seen in all my years working in sport and in a multitude of different sports, even working for the Olympic committee, um, I've never seen a sport or a discipline of a sport scale as fast as this on the girls' side. So there was a, there was any number of stakeholders, any number of discussions that happened. But in the end, it was you have a real chance with flag, not as likely with tackle. And so an international federation's primary function, again, as you probably know, is to be in the Olympics. You want to you want to be at the highest level, and that was our best chance in football. And the stars started to align, you know, over a number of years. How big of a deal is it that the Olympics are in L.A.? And if they were in, pick a country, Moscow, Beijing, or pick a city, Moscow, Beijing, uh, Sydney, whatever. uh, How much did having the, the games in the United States push this? No question, absolutely paramount that it, it the opportunity to start football in the Olympics likely wouldn't happen if it wasn't in the U.S. and probably particularly L.A. Uh, the Again, you probably know this, but I'll use uh, Japan and, and Tokyo as an example in 2020. So the IOC purposely set a, uh, a strategy in motion years and years ago where they invite the this the country and the local organizing committee to identify the invitational or demonstration sports that they would like to see added to the program and and it's exactly what you probably would expect they want they want there to be you know more ticket sales more people in stadiums uh right. ultimately more eyeballs in broadcast uh there there clearly is a a purpose behind it but one that seems to really work well. So in Tokyo, they added baseball, you know, an incredibly popular sport that wasn't in the Olympics at the time. So uh, so hence we had the opportunity or L.A. 28 had the opportunity with the IOC to add, I mean, lacrosse, a very popular sport in the U.S., obviously flag football now, an incredibly fast growing popular sport, et cetera, et cetera. You know the rest. But that's really so. Yes, you are exactly right. No question is that a critical piece to this overall success of getting flag in the games. I want to I'm curious, do you think that this is going to be permanent? How how does the IOC examine this after, say, one Olympic Games uh, and and say we want to continue or we're not going to continue it. What what has to happen for flag football to be a permanent Olympic sport? So we're in the process of of I'll use the term onboarding with the IOC as well as LA twenty eight as well as USA Football person person or uh, specifically with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So we're working through that process. That said. 
Uh, and without knowing the exact details, my assumption and expectation is, again, probably what you'd expect. Does the sport have interest? Does it drive ticket sales? Is there fandom going on around the sport? Is it is it appealing on NBC and, and broadcast? Um, you know, how is the competition? Things that are critical to the IOC are uh, competitive balance, uh, um, inclusiveness, Eventually, we have to have adaptive. You don't have to have it as an invitational sport, but if it does stay on the program in the future, you'd have to add adaptive, and we can do that as well. So it's, it's lack of a better term, business metrics and overall competitiveness are super important to this. To the extent, so I don't, I don't know what's going to happen there. I feel very confident that with certainly the support of the NFL, uh, the NFL clubs, et cetera, that will put on a really great show. I think because it's football, there also be a lot of interest and certainly we'll probably talk about it. I mean, to the extent you can add an NFL player or two, that would only add that much more interest. And then the, the other thing I'd share real quickly is the quality of the, the women's side, the, the, the quality of the talent is, is really something to behold. We're talking what we refer to as in the Olympic movement as talent transfer. So uh, truly elite, uh, you know, women's athletes. So division one basketball players, soccer players, look, uh, volleyball players, you name it. They are sort of coming out of the woodwork to, to play this game. I think it's just, you know, the probably the, the decades of growing up with dads and brothers and, you know, boyfriends and what have you, uh, and, and not necessarily having access to the game. And now all of a sudden the floodgates are open and they're coming in droves. So it's really cool to, to see. Um, but ultimately the fact the next games is in Brisbane, Australia, I think also gives us an opportunity. If it was in, I don't know, any number of other places, uh, we probably wouldn't have as much of a chance. So certainly the ball's in our court, so to speak, with putting on the best possible, uh, I'll just call it performance uh, overall, again, in, in both business and competitive metrics, and then ultimately hope that we can appeal to Australia, which I know the NFL is trying to grow there. I know there is interest in football and flag is growing and rugby is Australian rules, rugby and other things are, are clearly more popular, but, uh, but there's a chance. I'll just tell you this. I think there will be an NFL game in Australia, a real, a regular season game. I don't know what year I'm thinking 27, 28, no later than 29. The interest is too great. And You've got teams, uh, the Rams, for instance, the Philadelphia Eagles. I'll tell you, the Philadelphia Eagles would love to play a game there with Jordan Maylotta before his career ends so that he could play in his home country or home area, you know. So, but I wanted to ask you about. Well, that would help. Clearly, that would help if that yeah, happened. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about how, at least in my mind, I've seen a lot of players in the NFL, Tyreek Hill for one. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of guys have said, man, count me in. I want to play. I want to go for an Olympic gold medal, which is fun, which is great. But part of me says, now, wait a second, Tyreek, you're going to be 34 years old. I mean, it might have to be the next Tyreek Hill, you know, and, and nothing, nothing against Tyreek Hill, but his game is speed. Is he still going to be a dominant player in five years? You know, science, health, nature says maybe not. But I was thinking just as you were talking about <clears throat> what really maybe not has to happen, 
But the best thing that could happen is to get, let's just say for the sake of argument, Patrick Mahomes to be the quarterback or, you know, a player or two who, and I don't even know that we can predict who it would be right now, Scott, because you're not going to pick it till at least 26 or, or 27, probably 27. And, and you just don't know who's going to be great then that's four years down the road, but how important is it? And how will you attempt to get NFL players involved in this venture? Well, first of all, again, the sort of the the business side of this has to work itself out like the NBA, right? Uh, the, the NFL and the NFL Players Association have to work it out in terms of the CBA, uh, then you, you probably have to address it with the owners. I mean, I don't want, I would never speak for them. I know there's a lot of interest. Uh, you know, I was having meetings at the last owner's meeting and there clearly was a lot of interest and discussion to your point, but I think a lot of things have to get sorted out. That said, you know, would it be exciting? Are there opportunities uh, unequivocally? You're, again, 100% right. First of all, USA Football, like any other um, governing body, has to uh, has to define the player selection process and get it approved by the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. It has to be transparent, you know, fully published on our website and everywhere. Everyone knows exactly what that process is. In a perfect world, and we're not there yet, uh, we would want to be at least a year, if not ideally two in advance. This is a different game. There's no question about it. For what it's worth, real quick, I saw an interview just recently with Steve Young talking about coaching his daughters. Uh, and, and of course, they would ask him about if you could coach, if you could coach and or play today, who would you want with you? And it really is about the Tariq Hills that are that quick, dips and spins, things like yeah. that. You got to be incredibly accurate. Those those guys are uh, have been certainly uh, and have the potential to be uh, that kind of a quarterback. But it's it's a different game by point being it would take time. There's no way that even as talented as certainly NFL players are that you could just sort of come over a month in advance and play again. The timing, it's 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 right before the season would start, right? Or training camp would start. So uh, so there's any number of factors. All of that is simply to say there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest. Certainly former players, recently retired players would be an, a natural option. Um, but there, I will also say there are some really talented, uh, you know, existing players today that right. naturally want to play and and have you know worked really hard to refine their skills and have proven themselves on the highest stage we have thus far, which are world championships or what they call the world games. This would be another level and we all of us, all 70 countries have to work to continue to improve the quality of our athlete pools. Uh, but the bottom line is NFL players, both domestically, but sort of to your point about these other countries, internationally would add a really exciting dimension to this. Um, so as long as there's proper lead time, uh, proper development uh, you know, process, we call it high performance development, all of that would need to be in place. Uh, and, and the good news is these conversations are, in fact, happening. We're literally having these kinds of conversations with the NFL already about how could we make this work. Scott, what also interests me is that I'm sure that the average person who just saw the news about flight football being an Olympic sport probably just assumes, well, let's chalk up the gold for the USA in both men's and women's. But... I found this out over in Germany recently going over for 
the NFL game, uh, there's a lot of people in a lot of countries who are good at this game and who have devoted a lot of time to this game. So, so give me, let's say, the three. Let give me three good challengers to the United States. United States on both the men's and the women's side. Who's good out there right now? Yeah, women's, no question. Uh, Mexico. I mean, they in the World Games, uh, they they beat the women's team for the gold medal. Uh, the Italian men. They beat our women's they team. They beat our women's team. Yeah, absolutely. We came back and just beat them this past summer in the Continentals, and we have the World Championships next summer. But it is always super competitive right down to the wire. Two, uh, just two really talented teams and programs overall. And to your point, the feeder system and, and the future athletes here are only going to continue to get better. Panama is another one. Brazil wow. is another one on the women's side. How did um, Panama get good in women's football? They they literally draw these incredible, again, uh, they had former Olympic volleyball players and soccer players on our team. They have to learn the sport. What would uh, probably interest the, you know, the, 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 the followers is, is the the fact that it uh, two things one uh, sort of the, the the teams follow the culture so often uh, Japan as an example super disciplined super uh, well coached uh, the you know not always as big but in this game or at least in the tackle side in the flag side super fast quick very accurate just well coached um, the uh, on the men's side you'd, you'd say uh, Canada uh, uh, Austria. And um, it, Italy and then Japan. Japan's in there. So um, and then, t- as we said, I mean, uh, you know, Australia and others are coming on fast. The, this was the other big difference. I mean, quite candidly, when the tackle side, the U.S. will sort of travel all over the world at these world championships events. And we end up playing Canada. I mean, that's all and or maybe Mexico. That was the top three all the time. This we're already seeing not only dramatic increases in the number of countries and the number of teams on the men's and women's side that are attending our world championships, like more than doubling each time, the quality of the competition continues to improve. So certainly over the next four years. And the other thing that's super important here is now that it's been officially uh, in you know part of the 28 Olympics, the respective national Olympic committees will get behind these sports. In in most cases, there'll be funding to support the development of the athletes and so forth. So there's just a lot of momentum and opportunity to continue to improve. So, you know, will the U.S. have a real shot at gold? Of course, because number one, we're committed to it and we're going to work really hard at it. But number two, uh, there's going to be serious competition. It's not a cakewalk by any stretch of the imagination. Scott, I'm just people are going to be listening to this and say, how possibly, even four years from now, could teams in Italy and Austria and Australia, how could they compete with, with our teams? And I wonder, what has gotten football to be popular to the point that young kids in Italy or Austria or England are going out and throwing a football around? What, what has happened? Well, I, I mean, in fairness, the you know football development and, and and these countries have had federations now for 
well, I've been involved almost two decades. So, so two to three decades at a minimum, number one. Number two, flag is, if you will, the soccer of development. It's super easy to develop the sport. Our, our, we're talking about a 50-yard field, which is just, you could argue, just an open you know, space of grass, any field, two 10-yard end, end zones by 25 yards wide. So it's a relatively small patch of grass, if you will, that you can play on. All you need is a football, like a soccer ball. And you could argue, you know, you can play touch just to get started. You can add, you know, socks to be flags. You, It's super inexpensive, super easy. Uh, you do have to teach quarterback play. That is probably the biggest yeah. challenge, frankly, is teaching that properly. And that's something that's already starting. We're having more and more people contact to us, contact us, you know, former collegiate quarterbacks and others saying, how can we help you grow this, particularly on the women's side? There's just a lot of excitement around that. But that's an opportunity. But the other one that I should mention, uh, again, not unlike uh, hockey or or basketball, your you, American athletes that that have dual citizenship will go play. In fact, the quarterback for Italy was a Division two quarterback in this in in our country uh, that was play, had dual citizenship. So you're allowed to obviously play for your other. Wow you know, your other country that will likely expand, especially with the likes of the NFL Academy program and a lot of universities now out recruiting international tackle football players that will absolutely want to play and represent their country. So, so the combination of the Olympics, you know, the growing interest in international football players, mostly tackle uh, dual citizenship, sort of all of those are factors to see this grow granted four years you know, might sound like a lot to some people, doesn't sound like a lot at all to me, uh, but you will see definite improvement in the quality of both men's and women's athletes. I just have one last thing. I, you know, when I think of being an employee of NBC and knowing how much they value the Olympics, when I think of NBC coming into a meeting with you, I think they're going to say, hey, listen, you know, I, we want to get a great team out there, but let's try to convince Mahomes to play. You know, I, I don't know that it would take a lot of arm twisting. I think he would love doing it. The question is, what are your chances of getting, and and again, I understand that somebody who plays flag football all the time might be better right now than Patrick Mahomes is in flag football. I get, I get that. I understand it. It's a little bit of a different game, but you almost have to get a big name either at quarterback or one of your prime receivers. So how do you view the likelihood of that happening? Well, so there are a lot of steps that have to and, and things that have to fall in place for that opportunity to present itself. But again, uh, we'd have to start with a very strict uh, uh, a player selection process, which would more than welcome and be open to such players. Uh, they'd have to be willing to work with us in the offseason and really develop. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, my personal opinion, now I just give you that, is I would love to see what I'll call a blended team. I just think it would be great in so many ways. I'd also share that I, I share this all the time. Uh, again, having both worked at the U.S. Olympic Committee, been around it, I was, uh, I'll age myself, I was involved actually with the Olympic Committee way back in 92 when the first ever true dream team happened in Barcelona. So I had a, a, a I was there, I had appreciation for it, uh, you know, learned how it was working. Anyway, point being, one of the things I think that NBC does so exceptionally well 
is, of course, tell the story about the, you know, the, the truly elite, amazing athletes. But when they tell the stories about, you know, the curling guy who's from yeah. you know, Wisconsin and you're like, I would never in a million years pay any attention to the curling guy from Wisconsin if it wasn't for NBC telling me who this person is. So I just personally feel like that is such a cool thing to have some, with respect, average Joe, average Jane that's coming up, you know, it's, I don't know, a plumber and, and, but they're this really good, you know, uh, there's no, Scott, there's no doubt about that. That's the Ebersol legacy, but I yes. will say this. I will say this to get ratings, you got to get them a homes. That's, That's all fair. I'm saying. That's <laughs> you know, fair. I get and, it. And, I get and, it. and who knows? You're not I, the first to suggest that, but yeah, uh, yeah, I hear you loud yeah. and clear. <laughs> Scott Hallenbeck, CEO, Executive Director of USA Football. I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. And I'm glad you educated me a little bit. I've been a little bit of a of a negative guy on, not negative guy on flag football, but a negative guy on flag football in the Olympics. And now I'm starting to think this might be a good competitive sport in LA five years from now. I believe you, I believe it will be, but I appreciate it. And thanks a lot for having me on. So my thanks to everyone, all of you, as well as Miles Simmons uh, for helping out this week and every week. My thanks to Mike North of the NFL, of Scott Hallenbeck, of USA Football, for really bringing you sort of a diverse podcast this week with a lot of different points of view. Hope you enjoyed it. And really, I, I, I honestly wanted to make a little bit of a longer podcast this week because I figure that you're probably just holed up in some airport anyway somewhere or you're on the road or you're hanging around, you're walking the dog in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Maybe I just ran into you a little while ago. But anyway, I just wanted you to be able to uh, enjoy the mellifluous tones of me, Miles, and our guest this week. We will be back next week, post-Thanksgiving, still eating leftovers, and bringing you another episode of the Peter King Podcast. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everyone. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.